Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Sobolewski, and today I'm going to be talking about mastoiditis. Why? Well, recently I've actually had a lot of cases come to the ED with kind of bad swimmer's ear, external otitis, but the people that sent them to the ED were worried about mastoiditis. So I thought I'd talk about this relatively rare but can't-miss diagnosis. So, in this episode, we're going to talk about how we define it, how we diagnose it, when to get imaging, and how to treat it. So, what is mastoiditis? Well, it's a suppurative infection of the mastoid air cells. Mastoid air cells are part of the temporal bone, so it's that bump right behind the ear. These are a series of interconnected air cells that are in the postauricular space, and they're lined by respiratory epithelium, so they're kind of like a sinus. The mastoid is anatomically related to the middle ear and the eustachian tube, and it's particularly close to the facial nerve, the sternocleidoid mastoid muscle, the inner ear, the jugular vein, the internal carotid artery, the brain, and the meninges, which are all very important structures. Mastoiditis is a complication of acute otitis media. I'll say it one more time. Mastoiditis is a complication of acute otitis media. So you kind of have to have acute otitis media to get mastoiditis. Therefore, you need to see the tympanic membrane when examining a child. And I know that this can sometimes be hard in cases where the external canals are very swollen and there's a lot of regional pain. The middle ear itself is contiguous with the mastoid air cells. So in cases of acute otitis media with persistent inflammation, pus accumulates inside the mastoid cavities as well. And so this is what's called acute mastoiditis with periostitis. This is the early form of the disease with the classic signs of postauricular tenderness, erythema, and swelling with protrusion of the auricle. The mastoid itself is made of very thin-walled air cells, these little septae. And as the pressure from purulent fluid rises, these bony walls can be obliterated. Therefore, you get coalescent mastoiditis. This is where the pus can move adjacently and cause a number of complications, and I'll get to those later. Subacute mastoiditis, which is not a focus of this episode but important to mention, is a low-grade, persistent infection in the middle ear and the mastoid with destruction of the bony septae. And this is in kids with persistent OME or recurrent AOM. Chronic mastoiditis is a separative infection of the mastoid air cells for months to years. Again, not something that we typically see in the ED, but definitely concerned in primary care settings and with ENT. All right, so the highest incidences in kids under two, and the risks are headed by those children with recurrent AOM, but I've seen it occur in school-age kids and teenagers as well. The classic features, the things that will show up on your boards, posterior auricular tenderness, swelling, erythema, and fluctuance, protrusion of the ear, and the swelling also causes loss of the postauricular crease, and otalgia. So it's posterior auricular tenderness, swelling, erythema, and fluctuance, protrusion of the auricle, and ear pain. A systematic review of 65 studies um, from Van der Ardweg showed that there's actually a lot of different symptoms that go along with mastoiditis. So 96% of patients have some degree of lethargy or malaise. They just feel terrible. 82% have an abnormal tympanic membrane examination. Posterior auricular exam is abnormal in 80%. That includes erythema, tenderness, protrusion of the ear. 76% have fever. 
71% narrowing of the external auditory canal. Hmm. Two-thirds have ear pain and half have otorrhea. Up to 80% of the children with mastoiditis had had recent AOM. Usually, the tympanic membrane in cases of mastoiditis is also abnormal. You've got bulging, effusion, or even perforation. Sometimes that external auditory canal is really swollen and precedes visualization. So, technically speaking, the absence of acute otitis media, current or recent, you know, within the last six months, does not strictly exclude a diagnosis of acute mastoiditis. In practice, most often, kids have concurrent middle ear disease. So there may not be a middle ear effusion if the eustachian tube is patent and the path between the middle ear and the mastoid, which is called the aditus ad antrum, is obstructed. So what about those kids that came to the ED with just bad otitis externa or somebody was concerned about mastoiditis? Well, they didn't have posterior auricular swelling and tenderness, and the ear itself wasn't pushed forward. So even if you don't see classic AOM, you should see the other signs to make you worry about mastoiditis. Fever itself is actually very nonspecific, but febrile kids with a confirmed diagnosis of mastoiditis may have complications as well, and these kids may need a more invasive surgical intervention. As you'd expect, the most common bacteria that cause mastoiditis include Streptococcus pneumoniae, Streptococcus pyogenes, and Staphylococcus aureus, especially everyone's favorite, MRSA. Pseudomonas aeruginosa is not the most common bacteria, but you should think about it in a child with history of recurrent AOM and recent antibiotics. Cultures from the external auditory canal may falsely lead one to think that pseudomonas is actually the cause as opposed to from the fluid that was definitely behind the TM. So that's why kids, and this is more into the management section, all need to have a sample fluid from behind their TM obtained. So the differential diagnosis in mastoiditis includes lymphadenopathy, parotitis, periauricular cellulitis related to otitis externa, infection of the auricle itself, you know, so it's ear infection, perichondritis, and tumors of the mastoid. Complications of mastoiditis can be devastating, and these occur when pus erodes these septations and then invades adjacent structures. Let me go ahead and organize it by kind of direction of spread. If you're lucky with mastoiditis, it'll go through the eustachian tube because it's patent or the tympanic membrane itself, which leads to otorrhea or nasal drainage. The most common complication seen in 60% is when the pus moves laterally. You get a subperiosteal abscess posterior to the pinna, erythema, fluctuance, and a tender mass over the mastoid bone. This is kind of that classic story of mastoiditis. If the pus moves inferiorly, you get a neck abscess beneath the attachment of the sternocleidomastoid and the digastric muscles. This is called a Bezold abscess. If the pus moves medially, you get petrous air cell petrocytis. This can lead to facial nerve paralysis or something called Gradinigo syndrome, which is otitis media, eye pain, ipsilateral abducens, the sixth nerve cranial palsy. It seems kind of testable though I've never seen it on a born exam. If it moves posteriorly, you can get occipital osteomyelitis, 
And if it goes through the oval or round window, you get suppurative labyrinthitis, which can lead to hearing loss, which could be permanent. Also dizziness, tinnitus, nausea and vomiting, vertigo and nystagmus. And most worrisome, if it goes through the inner cortical bone, you get central nervous system complications, meningitis, epidural, subdural, or brain abscesses, or venous sinus thrombosis. So to make the diagnosis of mastoiditis, well, first you have to be suspicious for it and have it on your differential. It all begins with the concerning physical exam and a good history. Labs themselves are nonspecific and in general not helpful. An elevated white blood count, a left shift, elevated ESR and CRP can all be seen but are not diagnostic. ENT will get middle ear fluid via tympanocentesis or with myringotomy, preferably with PE tubes and a culture. If you're considering a lumbar puncture because of concomitant meningitis and the child has papilledema or cranial nerve involvement, get a CT first before the LP. Blood cultures are rarely positive, but if a child has a fever greater than 39 centigrade, feel free to get them and get aerobic and anaerobic cultures. Now, imaging is not strictly necessary, but in my practice, it's requested quite often by ENT. CT, with contrast, is the most common, though MRI might actually be more sensitive for detection of extraaxial fluid collections and vascular involvement. So check with your radiologist and the capabilities of your facility. On CT, loss of the bony septae in the mastoid is diagnostic. You get destruction of the mastoid cortex. You can see periosteal thickening or subperiosteal abscess. If, on the CT, you see fluid and mucosal thickening of the middle ear and mastoid, this actually might just be seen in acute otitis media, and it's not strictly diagnostic. So again, you really want to see loss of the bony septa in the mastoid. The pus has really just eroded everything in there. In terms of ruling it out on a CT, mastoiditis is excluded if the mastoid itself is not opacified in general. Again, discussed with radiology and ENT. So treatment, early consultation to a pediatric otolaryngologist. That's if you're taking care of kids. Aspiration of the fluid of the middle ear is necessary. If you've got intracranial extension, you'll want to talk to neurosurgery as well. And once the child is inpatient, ID may be a consideration if you're finding the bugs are difficult to treat. So an uncomplicated mastoiditis, IV antibiotics plus myringotomy with or without PE tubes is considered conservative therapy, and it's successful in 67 to 90% of cases based on some retrospective data. If the child with uncomplicated mastoiditis is no better within 48 hours, then they get a mastoidectomy, which is a surgical removal of the mastoid cortical bone in the underlying air cells. If you've got complicated mastoiditis, and this includes anywhere where it can extend except for isolated facial nerve paralysis, this child is getting IV antibiotics plus myringotomy in PE tubes and mastoidectomy. So the specific antibiotic choice? Well, if the kid has not had recent antibiotics, so no antibiotics in the last six months, and no recurrent acute otitis media, then you can go monotherapy with vanc or linazolid. With recurrent acute otitis media and or antibiotics within the last six months, you're going to do dual therapy. So you're looking at vanc or linazolid, you know, for that MRSA coverage, plus something for pseudomonas. So either ceftaz, cefepime, piperacillin tazobactam, or if they've had anaphylaxis to a penicillin drug in the past, as trianam. 
you'll do IV for seven to 10 days and then oral for four weeks or more, kind of mirroring an osteomyelitis course. So fortunately, the outcome is generally very good for patients with mastoiditis, especially if they don't have complications and treatment is started early. Most get better within 24 to 48 hours of IV antibiotics. As you'd imagine, intracranial extension leads to bad stuff. Hearing loss is a main concern and needs audiology follow-up. So an interesting question, you know, does treating acute otitis media with antibiotics prevent one from developing mastoiditis? There's one big retrospective study from Thompson from the United Kingdom that kind of answers this question. So they did say, yes, you could prevent mastoiditis by treating acute otitis media aggressively with antibiotics across the board, and there's a number needed to treat alert here. So the number needed to treat of otitis media episodes with antibiotics to prevent one additional case of mastoiditis is 4,831. Just let that sink in for a second. So if you give no antibiotics for any acute otitis media, you outlaw them, you're going to see an extra 255 cases of mastoiditis in the population. But, at least in this study in the UK, they estimated 740,000 fewer antibiotic prescriptions. So what's the take-home here? A lot of otitis doesn't need antibiotics, and just try to be precise with who you're actually treating. Okay, so in summary, the classic features of mastoiditis include posterior auricular tenderness, swelling, erythema, and fluctuance, protrusion of the ear, and otalgia. 80-plus percent of cases have concurrent acute otitis media. CT is incredibly helpful to make diagnosis and identify spread, ask ENT early, and work collaboratively. Treatment is based on recent antibiotics and history of recurrent AOM. If no antibiotics in the last six months and no recurrent acute otitis media, monotherapy with vanc or linazolid. If recent antibiotics or acute otitis media, so in that six-month period, vanc or linazolid plus pseudomonas coverage. Treatment also includes myringotomy, most often with tympanostomy tubes. Mastoidectomy is reserved for patients with non-response within 48 hours or early invasive disease. Overall, the outcomes are good if mastoiditis is uncomplicated and treatment is initiated early. Well, that's all I've got for this episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Check out PEMblog.com for more great pediatric emergency medicine-focused educational content. Follow me on Twitter at PEMTweets or check out the Facebook page. And if you have the time, leave a review on your favorite podcast site, on the blog, or drop me a message on Twitter. Until next time, this has been Brad Sobolewski.